Well, amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Philippians chapter 4. On Sunday mornings uh, during the month of January, what we've been doing is dialing in on some main things that we need to keep as main things spiritually in our life. We learn about in God's Word uh, that we need to keep as main things in our life in order for us to stay on track as individual disciples and as a church in order for us to stay on mission and to make the impact that God's called us to make in our community and even in our world. So as a church, there are seven core values uh, that we looked at last year in our vision series, and hopefully you remember that. Uh, but seven core values, you can see those listed in most of the Bible Connect group classes around campus. You can see those listed on our website. Uh, but seven core values that are uh, values that help us to stay on track as a church. They really uh, help us to uh, focus on who God has called us to be. They really drive everything that we do as a church. In week one, we looked at the value uh, here at our church of clear biblical teaching. So we spent the morning uh, looking at how the Word of God needs to take its ultimate place in the life of us as disciples and in the life of our church. Uh, last week, week two, we looked at the principle of sincere prayer, how we need to be a praying church. And then here this week, week three, we're going to focus on another main thing. Now, what if I was to tell you that this very important thing that we're going to talk about this morning, something that we learn about in God's Word, what if I was to tell you that if this thing is a regular part of your life, that it'll bring you priceless joy while at the same time benefiting the people, people's lives that are around you? Would you want to know what that activity is? What if, one person, all right, so we're going to try this again. What if this same activity, as we seek to keep it a main thing in our life, would literally open up the windows of heaven and invite into your life spiritual blessings, God's spiritual blessings into your life? And you would also, as you are involved in this activity, you join in on the expansion of God's kingdom and work in this world and the advancement of the gospel, not only here in Jacksonville, but to the ends of the earth. Would you want to, if, if I told you that's the activity, if you were involved in it, that's what would happen. Would you want to know what that activity was? Yes. Well, that's better. All right. What if this same activity would guard your heart? All right. From envy and jealousy and greed and materialism and self-centered living while at the same time resulting in eternal rewards in heaven that will be waiting for you one day when your life on this earth is over. Would you want to know what that one thing is? This one activity I'm talking to, I'm alluding to and referring to, this one activity that is attached to all of these promises that I just listed off and I could fire off a bunch more from God's Word is the biblical practice of generosity. Is the biblical practice of generosity. Now, if what, what I've said is true, wouldn't we want to know more about what it means to be a generous person? Wouldn't we want to know more, because none of us have arrived, what it looks like to be generous people, right? Is there anybody here that'd say, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good on that. No, we'd all want to know more. We'd all want to understand more biblically what that looks like, all right? And 2,000 years ago, there was a, a real church full of real people that was located on the other side of the world that gives us a great example that's locked right in here in Scripture, it gives us a great example of what it looks like to be generous people. 
All right, people, gospel changed generous people. And that's what we're going to spend time doing this morning. We're going to look at this church and we're going to learn what it means to be generous, all of us. All right, so stand with your Bibles open. I'm going to begin to read Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. This is Paul writing to the Philippian church. And he said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I just pray very simply that your Holy Spirit would help us as we get into a subject that's sometimes difficult to listen to and to think through, but is important because it's right here in your word. And every part of our life is to be surrendered to you, and we should seek to align with your word. And what we're going to talk about this morning is part of our life, an important part of our life. So I pray that you'd make us teachable. I pray that you would help us to understand from your word what this looks like, not protect this room from this man's opinion. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be, by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit working in our lives today, a more generous people for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little bit of background to this letter, the letter we call Philippians. All right, Paul is in jail. That's where he wrote this letter from. He is in jail for preaching the gospel. And he has a great need. So in those days, the state didn't pay for your uh, care and for your food when you were in jail, when you were incarcerated. So he has a great need. The Philippian church hears about Paul's great need. They love Paul. All right, Paul was there at one time as, as a pastor. He's the, planted a church there. He's moved on for some time. He's been preaching the gospel. God continues to do great work and, uh, through Paul. And so they care for him. They hear about the need. They want to support him. And so they gather up this big love offering a big generous love offering. They uh, put it in the hands of a guy named Epaphroditus and they, off they send him to uh, deliver it to Paul in prison. All right, and so Paul receives it. And what we find here at the end of Philippians, he's written a letter back to this church from prison. You know, it's filled with all kinds of great truth. A really, really important letter for you to work through as a disciple of Christ. If you've never worked through it. All right, so I don't have time to give you a review of everything that it talks about. But here at the end, what you do find is you find this thank you note to the church in Philippi for this generous gift that Paul received that helped meet his needs. All right, and that's what we just read. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of just... Settle right here and camp out in this theologically rich thank you note that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And it's going to teach us four really important truths about generosity, about gospel-driven generosity. Number one is this, first truth, that the attitude of generosity is contentment. The attitude of generosity is contentment. Another way we could say that is generous people, if you look into their life, they're content people. Right? Look at verse 10. 
Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. So he's talking about the gift that they sent him. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I learned in whatever situation I am in to be what? Say it with me. Content. All right, let's talk about for a moment what it means to be content, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to see how that kind of attitude drove them to be generous as a church. All right, Paul teaches us here what it means to be content. Let me give you a definition based on what this passage is teaching us this morning about contentment. Great definition to remember, great definition to write down if you're taking notes. Contentment is when how you are doing isn't based on how things are going. Contentment is when how you're doing isn't tied to how things are going. When your status isn't contingent on your circumstance. All right, when, when you can say it is well with my soul and it may not be so well with your bank account right now. All right, contentment is when you can say it is well with my soul even though it may not be so well with your marriage this morning or your finances right now or with your family right now or with a relationship right now. Contentment is being able to say in spite of my bad circumstances, in spite of my difficult situation, I'm able to say in Christ supernaturally by the grace of God that it is well with my soul. All right, so for the person who's truly content, think about this, how you are doing and how things are going are two different questions. You get that? This is Paul's testimony. He modeled it for the Philippian church. They followed in his footsteps. They've learned from how he's modeled contentment for them and that attitude. And now he models it for us. Look at verse 12. I, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul says, I know what it means to be brought low. You know what that means? That Paul right here, this just isn't some kind of advice that's coming from an unqualified bystander in Scripture that has no idea, you know, how, uh, you know, the difficulty in life works. All right, he's saying, I've been through some stuff. All right, he's been shipwrecked. He's been left for dead. He's been stoned, persecuted, bitten by snakes. He's been abandoned by people who he loved and he trusted and who he ran with and did ministry with. Right? And, and he says right here, listen, I've had bad days. I've had bad months. I've had really difficult years. I know what it means to be brought low. And he also says, I know what it means to kind of like live high on the hog. I know what it means to be in circles of influence and affluence. I know what it means to, to rub shoulders with the elite and the popular. Paul had experienced life. Later in his life, he's looking back. He's experienced life kind of on both ends of the social and economic spectrum. And yet what we learn from the way he's talking, from what he's saying and sharing from his heart is that he's lived life on both sides of those spectrums, but he's not allowed any of that to grab his heart or to define for him his well-being. How do you do that? Are you wondering that this morning? Like, how can I live life that way? Well, he, he lets us in on the secret. Anybody? We like secrets, don't we? Right? Kids love secrets. Right? We, it kind of makes you feel like you're getting in on something. Right? We like secrets as long as we get to get in on the secret and as long as it's a good secret. Right? And both of those things are true with what Paul's doing right here. He's letting us in on a secret. And it's a really good secret. He says, I've learned the secret to how you can be content, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, in any and all situation. And here it is. It's in verse 13. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. That's the secret. Now, about that verse, we need to stop and we need to think about that verse right there because that's a popular verse, not just in church, it's a popular verse in culture, right? That's a, that verse is all over coffee mugs, all around America. 
It's on the back of every FCA t-shirt, every printed, I think. Fellowship of Christian Athletes, some of you get that. But it's one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in all of Scripture. It's kind of become, hasn't it, this kind of thing in our culture that's viewed like this good luck charm verse that you just declare before you do something that seems really impossible, really difficult. This, this, is, this is a verse that's been put over too many weight benches throughout America. That you like yell out before you lift way too much weight. You have no business trying to lift. Or if that, the poor guy who's about to ask the girl out, who's like way out of his league, you know, he's like, I can do this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or maybe there's a guy who just started playing golf, right? And he's, he, he's a little nervous, wants to impress his buddies. And he's like, I want to go out there and I want to shoot a subpar round, right? And so he's on his way going, I can do this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. No, you can't. You've never played golf before. Stop misapplying that verse. To the weight bench guy, you got no business lifting that weight, right? Stop misapplying that verse and yelling that out. The guy who's asking the girl out, you can use that verse as a motivational quip in your life all you want. She ain't going to go out with you. What Philippians 4.13 is not saying is that I can always change my situation through Christ who gives me strength. He's saying I can face my situation no matter what it is. No matter how bad it is, no matter how difficult it is, through Christ, who is my strength, who is my treasure, who is my portion, who is my reward. He's saying, even if I don't get the promotion, I can do all things through Christ. Because my contentment is not based on whether or not I get this new job. That doesn't define who I am. That doesn't define my identity. He's saying, even if you don't get the girl or you don't get the guy and you're 45 and you'd love to be married right now, that's, a, that's an okay thing to desire. And it's good to pray about that. But even if it's not working out the way you hoped it would work out, you can still say, it is well with my soul. I can face this. I can get through this because Jesus is better. I can face all things through Christ who gives me strength. When you go play golf this week, Right? You may not hit a single drive past the lady's tee the entire round. You may shoot 150 on the front nine. Golf people are kind of laughing at that. They get that joke. But it's okay because my identity isn't wrapped up in my athletic prowess or my athletic ability or my reputation with my buddies. I can face even that because through Christ who gives me strength. Church, what Paul is teaching right here is that when you have Jesus, you got everything you need. That is the secret to contentment. Believing in your heart more that Jesus is enough. We too often, even after we come to Christ, is it not true? We too often buy the lie, man, that if I can just get rid of these situations, if I can just change my circumstances, if I can just have a little bit more of what I already have, maybe it's a bigger house, a better job, if I can get the ideal relationship, then finally I will be satisfied. Listen, has that worked up to this point in your life? So what makes me think getting that next thing that I think I need will suddenly and finally make me feel like the happiness that I'm chasing. The secret is to take your eyes off of your current circumstances. To take your eyes off of your current situation and off of your earthly treasure and to learn to treasure your true treasure and that's Jesus Christ. And to see in Him, we got everything we need and more. In Him, we're richer than our minds can even begin to fathom. We have a home in heaven. Our sins are forgiven. We have an eternal inheritance awaiting us in heaven. We have His never-leaving, powerful presence inside of us that will never leave us. He is enough. 
And the Philippians got this, not just Paul. Philippians got this, not just Paul. The church here got this and had a heart attitude of contentment in Christ. And we know that, and that's evidence in the way that they hold on to their things loosely. Because of that heart attitude of contentment, that's what drove them, even though they were a poor church. You read in Corinthians, they were poor, they didn't have a lot. They were a poor church, and yet because they were content in Christ, they were able to hold on to their things loosely and look around them for the needs of other people that they could meet. It's because of their contentment. In your current circumstances, are you content? I didn't ask how things are going. I asked how are you doing in spite of how things are going. Are you content this morning? Listen, until he is enough, until you're satisfied in Jesus, until you're content in him, you will never be a generous person. Not, I'm just not talking about money this morning. I'm talking about with your life. With your life, with your talent, with your time, with your ability. And also because it's part of our life, with your resources, with your money. Number two, the context, that's the attitude of generosity. The context of generosity is community. Look at verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to what? Share in my trouble. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. Now something, a lot of you got little kids in the house right now. A lot of you, if you had little kids, you'll remember this. Something that most kids, when they're little, are not good at is sharing. Scratch that. They're not good at sharing when it doesn't benefit them. Isn't that true? Like when their brother or sister comes through the door, and maybe grandma or they got a bag of candy from somewhere, and they come through the door with that bag of candy, and the brother, siblings are over watching that one come through the door with a bag of candy. Well, these guys over here, all of a sudden, they become big advocates of sharing, right? Mom and dad, don't we want a culture of sharing in our home? Right? He's got that bag of candy. Isn't that what we're trying to do here? Isn't that a Christian thing that we need to do? All of a sudden, that becomes a core value of their life. Kids tend to be big advocates of sharing when it benefits them. But if later that day, that same sibling who walked through the door with that bag of candy, if that sibling was to get in trouble, and they were to be sent to the room away from the video games and like a timeout type of situation, nobody's interested in sharing in that, in that circumstance. No one is interested in sharing in that kind of experience with them, are they? I've never had one of my kids in that scenario come to me as their brother or sister was off in a room somewhere, in trouble, dealing with something like that, I've never had one of the other kids come to me and say, Hey, Father, I want you to know I'm not just an advocate of sharing and the blessing of my siblings. I'd like to share in their trouble as well. Can I have your permission to break myself away from these video games and to give myself a time out and to go in their room and to shoulder this burden that they're carrying and just to spend time with them and to support them in their time of need, in their time of trouble. No, they ignore their trouble. They're like more Mario, Mario Kart for me, baby, right? But doesn't that really capture the human heart? We like to share in blessing. I mean, break me off some blessing, right? I'm all about sharing in some blessing, but we don't like sharing or getting too close to other people's trouble. The gospel shows us a vastly different picture, a more, a, a bigger scope of what it looks like as Christians to share. As we look at what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He's not looking out of heaven and seeing us in our blessing to come and share in that with us. No, what does he do? He sees us in our trouble. Trouble 
that our sin created, that he didn't create. And yet he looks at that and he says, let me share in your trouble. And he went to the cross. In that cross that he was nailed to, that he died on, that was our cross. That was the trouble our sin created. The punishment that he took for our sins. That was our trouble. And he took on our trouble and then shared with us his blessing. That's the gospel. And if we're people who have been gripped by that gospel who are now followers of Jesus, then we become, we become generous like Jesus and we move towards people in their needs and their troubles so that we can seek to be a blessing to them, shoulder their burden with them. That's part of the reason we exist as a church. A church is not just something like a building with scheduled services with a bunch of programs. We're a community of redeemed people oriented around and gripped by the truth of the gospel, sharing, yes, in each other's blessings and also sharing in each other's troubles and even other people's troubles. This is what the Philippian church does for Paul. Do you see that? He's in jail. He has a great need. He's in trouble. And they're like, hey, we love you, we see you, and we're going to share in your trouble. And what do they do? They give in a sacrificial way to help meet Paul's need to be a blessing to him. They're not sending just well wishes. They're not just sending you know, a nice flower arrangement with a little card that says, hey, we, we hope that you get out of there soon. We want you to know we're praying for you. That's good stuff. But what they do that actually really, really, they do something about it. They say, Paul, you're in trouble. Hey, they didn't have a lot of money. The Philippian church didn't have a lot of money. They see Paul in his trouble and they say, hey, we're going to carry some trouble. This is going to trouble us. I'm sure they could have thought about a lot of other things to use their money for. But they say, hey, we are going to step in and we're going to share your trouble and we're going to sacrificially give. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. And that's what he's called us to do. That's gospel-driven generosity. And I want you to know, it's so encouraging to hear stories of that kind of gospel generosity happening right here in our church. It's awesome. Recently, I heard about a person who, in a Bible Connect group, had an issue with their car. In that group, what did they do? They put their resources together to help fund that repair. It's amazing. That's awesome. That's gospel-driven generosity. I want you to know that when you give generously to this ministry, that you're giving to a ministry that's committed to helping fund ministries that are seeking to come alongside of people to share in people's trouble, to meet needs in a way that points them to Jesus. Your generosity helps us as you give to this church. Partner with some awesome ministries right here locally that are meeting people where they are, that are sharing in their trouble so that they can point them to Jesus. Your generosity helps us partner and provide gifts to ministries like First Coast Women's Services, a great ministry to highlight and to celebrate on this day, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. A ministry right here in our community that will interact with thousands and thousands of pregnant women in this new year who live in a culture that will tell those women, take the easy way out. Abort the baby. Nothing wrong with that. But First Coast Women's Services is a ministry that will come alongside of that lady, will share in her trouble, and will take God's Word, and will help her see the value and the worth of that life inside of her. And will take God's Word and help her to see that that's a gift of life that she's carrying. And that ministry won't only work, it won't only save, 
a lot of babies this year, but we'll also walk alongside of these women and even the men, the fathers who decide to stay and they'll help not only save that baby's life, but they will take God's word. They'll walk alongside that couple and they'll help them understand what it looks like to have a strong family that's rooted in Christ. So when we as a church look for opportunities to share in each other's trouble and we run to people in need and we give generously to help, whether that's in the context of your individual life, that's great. Some of you are doing that. Some of us need to open our eyes and do that. Whether it's in the context of your Bible Connect group, that's amazing. Or whether it's you giving generously and faithfully to a ministry like our church that's seeking to do that kind of gospel-driven generosity field ministry, that's good. That's a good God-honoring thing that pleases the heart of our generous God. That's a wise investment, which takes us to point three. The motivation of generosity is eternity. Let me ask you right now, what's the most valuable asset that you own? Don't answer out loud. What's the most valuable asset that you have in your possession that you're owner of right now in your life? Some of you are a little older. You may say, hey, that's probably my house. You know, it's paid for. Worth a little bit of money. Maybe you're thinking of an investment portfolio. Maybe you're young. Maybe you're in college. And you're like, I think it's it's my used biology textbook. It's worth about $100. That's about all I got right now. (laughs) I don't know what it is. But whatever that is for you, I do know this. that in Whatever that is for you, think about your most valuable asset. Whatever it is for you, it will be of no value to you in 120 years. There's nothing we can buy in this world. There's nothing we can invest in and give our resources to in this world that will matter a bit, 120 years from right now, except one thing. The Bible allows us to see what that is. God gives us one investment option, one place where we can put our dollars that God's word tells us will matter 120 years from now. Verse 17 says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What's Paul saying? He's saying, hey, that gift was nice. Thank you all for sending me that love offering. Thank you for being generous. I get to eat in jail. Woohoo! He's happy about that. But that's not ultimately why he's so filled with joy about their generosity. The reason he's so happy, the reason he's so thankful for the way they're being obedient and the way they're being generous is that there has been, because of their obedience, because of their generosity, there's been an eternal deposit in their credit. Paul's using an accounting picture phrase right here, and he's pointing out the truth that when we give in this life in the name of Jesus for the glory of God, for the advancement of the gospel, it will be returned. We will reap dividends in the life to come connected to that obedience. Mark 10, Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this, whatever you give for the gospel in this life, you will receive back 100 fold in the life to come. Now, Make this clear. The Bible makes it clear that the primary thing that should motivate our giving and our generosity, if you read the Bible, is the gospel. That's what should primarily motivate us to give. For the glory of God, for the advancement of the gospel, because in light of what God's done for me through Jesus, that's what ultimately should motivate us. And we're going to end with that in just a few moments. All right, so... That's, that's true. At the same time, when you read the Bible, you cannot ignore the fact that the Bible continuously, perpetually, repeatedly uses eternal rewards to motivate us to give. To motivate us to be generous. And so we need to deal with that. 
If that's what God's word tells us. If that's what Jesus said out of his mouth in Mark chapter 10, we need to deal with that. And according to the Bible this morning, what those truths, what the word of God is communicating to us is that the only money we will ever see again that we spend in this life is money that we invest in the kingdom of God. It's money that we give away for the sake of the gospel. And it says it will come back to us with eternal interest. I don't know what that looks like. All right? I'm not, anybody that says to you they know exactly what it's going to look like in heaven, I, I don't know where they're getting that from. It's not the Bible. I don't know what it looks like. You can speculate. What does that mean? I'm going to get like an extra story on my mansion in heaven. I don't, what does that mean? I don't know. The Bible isn't clear about that. What it is clear about is that this is investing advice that you can trust. If we can trust God with our eternal salvation, we can trust Him with this eternal investing advice. And it says the best thing you can do with your money, and it's not just that this morning. It's your time. It's your talent. It's the gifts that God's given you. It's your life. It's to invest it in the kingdom of God. And the way we use our money is part of our life. Some of y'all already are like, yeah, okay, okay. I knew it was coming. I've been coming to this church for a little bit. I knew he was going to start talking about money sooner or later. Well, if you've been to this church for a while, you know I don't talk a lot about money. But it is something, it's in God's word. It is something we need to be very careful about. It's something that Jesus talks about. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about a number of subjects, including heaven or hell. Why did he talk so much about it? Because money has a way of revealing the most important part about us, and that's our heart. And he wants us to be generous people. And this is something that can motivate us. Not just the gospel, but those eternal rewards. And this really is what should ultimately motivate us as well. Number four, the aim of generosity is God's glory. The aim of generosity is God's glory. Look at Paul's culminating declaration to his thank you note. Verse 20 caps it off with this. He says, To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the idea there is when God's people give God's money to God's purposes to fund the mission of God, it brings brings God glory. That's That's the point there. When God's people give God's money to God's purposes... To fund God's mission, it brings glory to God. All right, you need to make sure you got a light bulb moment happening right here. All right, that when God talks about generosity, what He's doing is He's inviting you in on His work in this world—a work that is good work, that is glorious work, that ultimately results in Him getting more glory. That's what generosity is. The command to be generous is an invitation to get in on God's work in this world. Right? And so if, if the money thing's weird, it's like, oh, man, God doesn't need our money. God's not needy. Right? He's not, God's not looking down this morning at Schindler Drive going, man, I hope they have a good offering this week. We've got some work to do. I hope they have a good offering this week. No, it said in Psalm 50, God said the world is mine. In Genesis, it says that he spoke the world into existence. And when you can speak something into existence, something out of nothing, need is never an issue. Need is never... God is not needy. But what he is, is he's a heavenly father who loves to involve his kids in his glorious work. And he's sovereignly chosen for his glorious activity that he's doing in this world to be fueled through the prayers and the generosity of his people. Think about 
Think about the activity, his activity, his work that he's done just through this fellowship right here over the last decades. Let me ask you this morning. You're going to get to interact right here, all right? If I were to ask you, it doesn't matter if you've been here for two weeks or if you've been here for the last 25 years, if you've been blessed in a small or a large way over the last several years or maybe even the last several weeks as a part of this church, if you've been blessed in a small or a large way through this local church called Schindler Drive Baptist Church, would you just raise your hand? Look around the room. Put your hands down. We could spend some time this morning, like a testimony time, that could go, probably go on for hours as people would stand and say, you know what, God has used this church. God has used the people in this church to help encourage me in my walk with Jesus Christ. God has used this ministry. When I came here, God used this ministry to point me in the direction of understanding how I could grow in a relationship with Christ. Some of you would say, man, I was addicted. I was in the chains and the shackles of sin. And yet now I'm today I'm walking clean with the Lord by His grace for His glory. And God used this ministry to help me in that process. I was about to give up. I was to the end of my rope. But I found hope in Jesus Christ through the ministry of this local church. My marriage was about to fall apart. We were about to call it quits. But God is healing us. And He's helped. Part, part of what's helped us is this local church. Or you might say, this is the best one of all. Man, I was lost. I didn't know Jesus, but I heard the gospel as a result of someone at this church or being in this church. I heard the gospel and Jesus saved me. All kinds of stories like that are connected to this ministry. And how did all that happen? Over the last months and years of this church being in existence, how did all of that, how did all that work happen? God did the work. But his work was fueled through the prayers and generosity of his people within this fellowship. We don't have some in-stream of money coming from somewhere else. Some of you may come here and you're like, man, there's nice chairs and it's a nice building and and they have a media thing going on here and they, they have staff here. They must have some endowment somewhere that they pull from weekly to help them function as a church. We don't. Some of you, maybe you're not familiar with our structure as a church and how we're governed, how we're structured. Hey, we're not part of some denominational structure that's funneling us funds to operate. We're completely self-funded. By who? By people like you who are generous, who do their part week in and week out and help fund the mission of Schindler Drive Baptist Church and who understand what they're doing, who understand when they give, they're making eternal investments that matter, who understand that when they give, it's helping the gospel go out, who understand that when they give, the gospel is able to be preached, the word of God is able to be taught on Sundays, our kids are able to hear about Jesus back in the kids ministry area, our students are able to be discipled in our student ministry, our community is able to hear about Jesus in the gospel through creative ministries like the Upward Sports Ministry. We're able to host Bible studies periodically that are helping people to grow. And we're able to support and send help to mission partners right here in our community and throughout the world. Your faithful generosity is fueling the work of God. And the gospel's going out and God's work is being done. What's the result? God gets more glory. The fame and the renown of God is spread more through that work. And here's what's exciting. As God 
continues to kind of light our hearts up about this and generosity continues to increase. You know what that does? It opens up more opportunities to preach the gospel more and to do more gospel ministry and to do more work and to get into the community and to run to the needs of others. And what's the result of that? God gets more glory. And that's why it's important for everybody to do their part. Now, some of you are thinking, again, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm already ahead of you, Pastor, because I kind of know where you're going with this. I've been in these sermons before, and you're probably going to bring up something about the tithe. But see, I've read the Bible, and I already know. I'm ahead of you. The New Testament don't say nothing about the tithe. And you're right. Pastor, I know that the tithe, that's an Old Testament thing, and we're not required to follow the Old Testament anymore. We're, we're in the age of grace. We don't live under the law anymore. Well, you've got to do your homework fully. Because if you have read the Bible in full, then you'll know that the principle of giving a portion of what God's blessed you with started 500 years before the existence of the law. Where Abraham, Genesis 14, you can read it, Abraham gave a tenth back to what he saw as God, what God had blessed him with. Right? Acts 11 in the New Testament. You see the early church giving a portion regularly. Out of what they had, viewed it as something that was already God's and God's asked for a portion of it back to help fuel and to help fund the local ministry of their church. Throughout the history of man's relationship, God's people have always given back a portion of what God's blessed them with to help fund the ministry of the local church that they're a part of. And if you're still caught up with that tithe thing, which is a word from the Old Testament that means 10%, In the New Testament, you're right. That word is not there. But I like what Randy Alcorn says. He says, every New Testament example of generosity goes far beyond the tithe. None of them fall short of it. I like the way another commentator said it it that I read this week. If a Jew living under the law gave a tenth, how much more should a Christian living under grace give? What What is he getting at there? That is a... Do you realize the gift it is to be able to live on this side of the cross? Every day we get an opportunity to wake up this side of the cross in the age of grace. And as a believer, it's another day I get to celebrate and remember the lavish generosity of God in the gospel. And you know what that should do? It should make me a really generous person. Every day I wake up is another day I get to be captivated once again by the lavishness of generosity I see in the gospel that God saw us in our trouble, emptied out heaven, sent his only son so that we don't have to die in our sins and go to hell. But he's made a way for us to have eternal life. You know what that should do? That should make me a really generous person who holds on to things loosely and is glad to give generously for the sake of the gospel. When you live in light of the gospel... And God's generosity, man, it becomes a joy to give. We become cheerful givers. Let me end with this, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul talks about that. That's important, cheerful givers. He said, each one must give as he's decided in his heart. You've got to get along with the Lord. My, personally, my family, we follow uh, you know, we, we tithe and then we go above and beyond that. We kind of follow what that commentator was laying out. I went with Emma, my daughter. She opened up a bank account this week. I'm like, this is crazy. I can't believe my kids are getting this old. I opened up a bank account, deposited her first paycheck. We walked through this, right? This is all, I want you to remember always, this is all from God. God gave us the breath that we have, that we woke up with today, and every bit of this income is coming from Him. And He's asked before you do anything else to give a portion back to Him. 
And this is a convict, this is a personal conviction. I'm not laying this over you as a legalistic way you got to give. But walked with her through how our family, you know, follows God's word in this way. And it's a personal conviction. We're going to give 10% and then we're going to give above that. That's what, that's what your pastor does. That's what your church staff does. People in leadership here. That's what they do. But he says right there in 2 Corinthians, each one must give as he's decided in his heart. But whatever you give, this is what he said, don't give it reluctantly and don't give it under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves what kind of giving? God loves what kind of giving? So that gives some of you a release this morning. Because some of you you are already a little grouchy. Maybe you were sad because the Jaguars lost last night. And you were grouchy, and you came in here, and as soon as you picked up, your little antenna went up. As soon as you picked up, he's talking about money. He was like, oh, my God, I'm scared to talk about it. I can't believe he's up there talking about money. He made you more grouchy. And inside, you've been sitting there for 35 minutes, sitting there talking about money. Listen, you're off the hook. The Bible lets you off the hook. Did you hear what it said? Each one should give, but not give grudgingly or under compulsion. So if you feel, like the, if you feel grudgingly or compelled to give, you're off the hook. Don't give. The only one who should give are those who say, man, I get to give today. In their heart, cheerfully go, man, I can't believe that I get to get in on God's work in this world, that he would include me in on that, that he would fuel his activity in this world through the generosity of people like me. I get to give. And if you're writing a check and it's like, I can't believe I'm having a write I'm going to write this, write this. Don't do it. You got to be writing a check like, whoo, I get to give today. We're not giving to the IRS. Do, do, give that way to the IRS. I'm going to write this thing. When you give to the Lord Jesus Christ and His work and for the sake of the gospel, you're giving to the one who was crucified on the cross for you, who raised from the dead and defeated the giant that you couldn't defeat death and who redeemed our helpless souls from the pit. So when we give to Him, it should be like Ric Flair. Woo! Can anybody do a Ric Flair? Give like that. That's the way it should be. And if that's not where your heart's at, you need to get it there. You don't need to get, you need to get it there and then give cheerfully. And I'll end with this. I'm not giving a new goal this morning, give and go for our church for the year 2023. You can just take a breath. It, it was amazing. It's amazing to look back and see what God did in 2022. Amazing. The fact that we are a church that's running 350, 400 people regularly on Sundays, and that church, our church, saw over a million dollars of gifts come into this local ministry last year. To God be the glory. That's amazing. Amen. But I believe God can continue to do some amazing things that can blow our socks off. But I want you to know what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to do what we've done over the last few years since I've been here as your pastor. We're not setting a new goal. We're not taking up a special love offering this morning. We're not putting a big thermometer on the, on the wall in the back. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you've got to do that, I guess. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep our hearts fixated on, in awe of, stirred up about the gospel. Amen. We're going to stay gripped by the selfless generosity of our God demonstrated through Jesus Christ on the cross and we're going to keep responding as a generous church gladly holding on to our things loosely 
in giving to the work of God generously and cheerfully as we move ahead. And I can't wait to see what God's going to do. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you're not a recipient of the lavish generosity of God that's seen in the gospel, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, this morning that's your greatest need. It's what your heart needs to focus in on. And this morning, if God's word has kind of shined a light on your life, you realize that you're in your sin, you agree with God's word about that, you realize that your sin will separate you, it separates you from God, he's holy, we're sinful, we can't bridge that gap on our own with good living or anything else, we're in desperate need of the generosity of God, hey, and he poured it out for you, by sending his son on the cross to die in your place, he did that for you, but you've got to receive that, you've got to believe in your heart that your sins are separating you from God. You've got to look back and believe that Jesus on that cross, what he was doing counted for you. He's taking the penalty for your sin. And that he didn't stay dead. He was laid in a borrowed tomb, but he rose again three days later. He's alive. He's the son of God who offers eternal life to all who trust in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. You can do that this morning. Repent of your sins. Turn to him. Receive the gift of salvation that's available to you. I'll be down front. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray for you if that's the work that God's doing in your heart. The rest of us, walk through this sermon in your heart and your mind this morning. Are you content this morning? Because if you are, you're not going to be the generous person that God's called you to be. So take another step of asking God, help me, help my unbelief, God, help me to believe more deeply that you are enough. That you are my joy. You are my treasure. Help my heart to be content in you. So we need to start there. Maybe this morning, as you think about your generosity, you haven't been, think, you haven't been thinking enough about how the gospel is what should be motivating us, that it is a good investment. And maybe you need to think about your own life and your own finances and how you're being a steward of what God's entrusted to you. It all came from Him. And the Bible's very clear about what we need to do. Let the Holy Spirit work in your heart as to what you need to do there. We pray for us, and we'll respond.